You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres joins the Post to discuss vaccine rollout, geopolitical stability, and how the United Nations is encouraging countries to work together. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post, and it's our pleasure today to welcome as our guest the ninth Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Mr. Secretary General, thank you so much for joining us. It's an enormous pleasure to be with all of you today. So uh, let's start with uh, an urgent crisis that uh, particularly engages the United Nations, and that's the the recent coup in Myanmar. Uh, You've expressed a grave concern. You've called for release of detainees that now includes the civilian uh, leader of, of the country, Aung San Suu Kyi. What's next for the UN in terms of what you can do to deal with this crisis? Well, unfortunately, the Security Council was not yet able to have unity in these regards, and uh, we will do everything we can to mobilize all the key actors of the international community to put enough pressure on Myanmar to make sure that this coup fails. I mean, uh, it is absolutely unacceptable uh, after uh, elections, uh, elections that I believe uh, took place normally, and uh, after a large period of transition, it's absolutely unacceptable to reverse uh, the results of the elections and the will of the people. I mean, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, if we can accuse her of something, is that she was too close to the military, is that she protected too much the military, namely in relation to what has happened uh, with the, the dramatic uh, uh, offensive of the uh, military army against the Rohingyas that led to this massive exodus to the Rohingyas, of the Rohingyas to Bangladesh. And Aung San Suu Kyi assumed the defense of the military, I mean, even in an international court. So if we can accuse her of something, was to be too close to the military. So it's absolutely unacceptable uh, to see this coup. And um, uh, I hope that uh, democracy will be able to uh, make progress again uh, in Myanmar. But for that, all the prisoners must be released. Uh, the constitutional order must be reestablished. And I hope that the international community will be able to come together. As I said, there was not yet unanimity in the Security Council. There was not yet unity in the Security Council. I hope that unity will come. And I hope that it will be possible to make the military in Myanmar understand that this is not the way to rule the country and this is not the way to move forward. Let me ask you, Mr. Secretary General, to focus on the refugee issue, the plight of the Rohingyas and, and other refugees. Before you became Secretary General, you were UN High Commissioner for Refugees, I believe. I want to ask you whether you would advocate some urgent intervention by the, the United Nations, by United Nations members, to deal with the humanitarian refugee crisis. Is this one of those situations where there really is a duty to protect people who who were being victimized? Undoubtedly. I mean, I was High Commissioner for Refugees and I visited Myanmar several times, including in North Rakhine State. And I visited, of course, the refugees in in Bangladesh. Um, It is a long story. It's a very complex story. Uh, The Rohingyas have been uh, never accepted as citizens of Myanmar. I've heard 
terribly racist comments about them. I heard uh, of, uh, in the past, I'm talking of 10 years ago, uh, Myanmar's officials saying, look at them, uh, they are darker, they are ugly, they are not ours, uh, uh, they should be, uh, they were brought by the British, they should go back to uh, Bangladesh. Uh, there was always this refusal to understand that they were part of uh, Myanmar. And indeed, when one looks at history, um, uh, I'm Portuguese. The Portuguese were active in that part of the world in the 16th century. There, there were Portuguese mercenaries in the old Arakan kingdom. And when one reads their testimony, there was always a Muslim population in the uh, Arakan kingdom that is now corresponding to, to the Rakhine state. So it's not true that uh, all these Rohingyas came from the outside, brought by the British, and they should be expelled again. Uh, they are part of the Myanmar society. They need to be granted uh, uh, rights and granted citizenship. And uh, from that point of view, there is a responsibility of the international community. Uh, obviously, uh, we did everything we could to protect them in Bangladesh, uh, and there is a massive humanitarian operation in Bangladesh. Uh, UNHCR with NDP and uh, our envoys have done everything they can to put pressure on Myanmar's authorities to understand that uh, they need to change policy, they need to create conditions for these people to feel they are theirs, for these people to feel that they can come back in safety and dignity, until now very little progress has been achieved on that. And now, unfortunately, with this coup, I'm afraid that uh, even the small progress that was made will be lost. Well, we're, we're hoping that uh, the Security Council will be able to, to find a, a platform for taking action. Let me turn, Mr. Secretary General, to a big development in the last few weeks, and that's the new administration here in Washington. One of President Biden's first moves was to rejoin uh, two UN-sponsored efforts, the Paris uh, climate uh, agreement and the World Health Organization. From your standpoint as Secretary General, what difference has it made to have a new president in Washington who appears to be committed to re-engaging in these international efforts? Well, as you can imagine, for the UN, the United States is an absolutely crucial partner. Uh, the U.S. was the most influential founder of the U.N. To a certain extent, the, the U.N. was largely shaped by the United States after the Second World War in dialogue with many other countries around the world, but with a, a very uh, strong influence. Uh, uh, the U.S. is a permanent member of the Security Council, is the largest uh, economic and military power in the world. So it is obvious. Um, uh, I remember when I was prime minister in Portugal, and that became very clear with the East Timor crisis, anything in the world could be done if the United States would engage for that to happen. Today, it's not as easy, but it is still clear that nothing serious can be done in the world without the US engagement. And so the fact that this administration decided to re-engage in some of the most critical aspects of uh, international action, of international cooperation, like uh, uh, the response to the COVID uh, and now the vaccines too, uh, climate, the climate emergency and the need for a concerted effort of the international community to defeat climate change and a number of other the commitments in relation to multilateral action and in relation to the United States is, of course, uh, something that is very much welcome because I believe, uh, uh, as I said, that uh, it is impossible to make anything serious and, and positive 
happen in the world uh, without the engagement uh, of uh, the United States. The United States is an absolutely essential partner of our international order. So, Mr. Secretary General, what would be on your specific list of asks, uh, if you will, things that you'd like to see this new administration commit to in addition to the commitments that it's already made uh, in terms of international efforts? Well, there are naturally many aspects. They, they, they relate to all the areas of uh, action of the United Nations. First of all, uh, in the aspects of peace and security, uh, an active engagement in addressing the most serious crisis that we face in the world. We are uh, having clear difficulties in Yemen, as it is known. Uh, situation in Libya is still not yet uh, entirely solved. Uh, Syria has been stuck. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, we have been stuck. Uh, so uh, the, the engagement of the United States in relation to the solution of uh, most of the dramatic conflict or uh, um, uh, even war situations in the world is, is extremely important. Uh, a, uh, the, the Gulf, uh, how to have uh, a, a possibility to address the very complex situation in, in the Gulf today, and that has to do with the JCPOA that uh, the West has abandoned, and that it's obviously a very complex situation now, uh, because it's not easy just to go back to where we were. It's a, it's, a, it's a complex situation. But in any case, the engagement of the United States is extremely important in that very tense area of the world. But also uh, in all areas related to climate change, uh, to uh, the Agenda 2030, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, uh, a more fair international, uh, uh, international financial architecture. Uh, uh, all these aspects are extremely relevant for uh, the United States action. The human rights dimension, where I believe this administration will also be very active around the world in many, 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 many aspects of it, from gender to um, uh, civic space, uh, freedom of press, and many other uh, areas. And uh, naturally, um, everything that is related to, uh, I would say, some of the most uh, dramatic challenges that we face today beyond the climate emergency. The questions of health, global health, uh, universal health coverage, the questions related to uh, nuclear uh, proliferation. And I was very happy to see uh, the prolongation of the New START agreement. So, uh, I mean, in all these crucial areas for the uh, world order, for international cooperation uh, that are uh, relevant to the United Nations agenda, it is absolutely essential to count uh, with uh, the engagement of the United States. I want to ask you to focus on several of those uh, in a little bit more detail, uh, starting with uh, issues of climate change. I'm curious whether you've uh, talked yet with uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry, who's going to be the, the Biden administration international envoy on, on climate issues. Uh, if you have, tell us about the conversation. If you haven't yet talked to him, what, what's going to be on your agenda in that conversation? We had uh, two brief contacts already, and uh, we count uh, uh, on the possibility to have a very close cooperation. And of course, uh, uh, all the different areas of the UN that are involved in the climate emergency are uh, also initiating uh, its contacts with the, the new American administration. I think we have uh, three key areas of concern, of uh, mutual concern. First, we need to build in 2021 
a truly global coalition for carbon neutrality, for net zero emissions in 2050. Uh, that coalition uh, has been growing. Uh, I remember uh, when uh, we launched here in the UN our first global uh, climate ambition summit uh, in September of uh, 2019, there were only a few countries committed uh, to net zero. Now we have uh, the European Union and the UK, we have uh, um, uh, Japan, we have uh, Korea, we have uh, um, China, even if uh, uh, with a time framework that is uh, a bit more extended. We have now the new American administration. All this covers about 65% of global emissions, but we need to get to at least 90% until the end of the year. And there are a number of great emitters, uh, namely in the G20, and I very much count on the cooperation with the, the US and the engagement of the British presidency of the COP uh, uh, that will take place in Glasgow to make sure that we build this coalition and that th this coalition is translated in immediate uh, results in nationally determined contributions by all member states to drastically reduce emissions in the next decade and to create the conditions for cities, for companies, for uh, financial institutions, uh, uh, for uh, the civil society, for everywhere to adopt roadmaps for uh, net zero uh, with clear measures, with clear timetables and uh, uh, mechanisms that allow to monitor the progress that is made. So an ambition to make sure that we don't allow temperatures to raise more than 1.5 degrees. 2021 is the year of make it or break it, and the US contribution will be absolutely decisive. On the other hand, adaptation. Uh, until now, adaptation has been the forgotten aspect of climate action. Only 20% of uh, climate finance goes to adaptation. But especially in the developing world, look at small islands. I mean, <laughs> climate change is already there. The impacts in natural disasters are huge. So we need to help those countries build resilience, create the capacity to um, uh, adapt their societies, their communities, their infrastructure uh, to the already dramatic impacts of climate change. And we need international solidarity for that. And that links to the third last aspect, climate finance. Uh, there was a commitment in Paris to reach 100 billion uh, US dollars of support uh, every year of the developed countries to the developing world, both with the private and the, uh, the public sector, both in mitigation and adaptation uh, from 2020 onwards. In 2020, this was not possible to achieve. Without the US, this would be impossible to achieve. And I hope the US will have a very important role, not only with its own contribution, but in mobilizing other actors for effective international financial solidarity on climate. And the three things are interlinked. If you want India, if you want uh, uh, South Africa, if we want uh, Indonesia to be able to reduce their emissions dramatically as we want, we need also to show them that there is uh, an assumption of responsibilities by the developed countries. And in this role, of course, uh, the United States have a, a central position. Thank you for the specific details in, in terms of what you're, what you're seeking. I want to turn to another perennial issue of concern for the United Nations, and that's peace in the Middle East and, and specifically some resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, problem. You uh, said uh, last week that you thought there were reasons for hope um, uh, for progress toward uh, uh, ending that uh, decades-old con conflict. And I want to ask you uh, what uh, specifically gives you hope and whether you're uh, thinking of trying to encourage a new meeting of the so-called quartet, the group of nations that in the past have uh, sponsored, encouraged 
uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace talks or other measures? Well, the truth is that we were completely blocked I mean, uh, in relation to any form of peace negotiation. We had the Israelis and the Palestinians that wouldn't talk to each other, uh, that have even disrupted the aspects of cooperation that existed uh, among the two. Uh, it was impossible to uh, convene the quartet. There was no agreement of the members of the quartet to, to, to move ahead, or any other variable geometry mechanism, uh, including several countries of the region, uh, to be able to re-establish an international discussion on uh, how to better support Israelis and Palestinians to come together. Uh, I believe that now uh, it will be possible uh, to have a meeting of the quartet. It will be possible eventually to find uh, 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 an expanded meeting of the quartet with other countries of the region. I believe, and of course, it will depend on the elections in Israel and the, the, in Palestine, but I hope that uh, the dialogue, the direct dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians that is absolutely crucial will be reestablished and that it will be possible to move uh, again into a format of a two-state solution in which Israelis and Palestinians can live together in mutual security. And I fully understand Israeli concerns about security. So this is something that needs to be worked out. But uh, my belief is it is it is possible if there is an environment in which uh, confidence is progressively established. And uh, if I understand well uh, what uh, has been recently um, uh, expressed here in the Security Council by the US uh, acting permanent representative, uh, there is a, a strong uh, will of the new US administration to play a positive role in creating these conditions for a true peace process to restart. And I'm wondering whether you specifically have any thoughts about how soon a meeting of the of the quartet uh, might happen uh, that would push this process forward. Is that something you think can happen this year? I would like to see it in the next few weeks. I hope it will be possible to move quickly, and uh, I hope uh, this will change the atmosphere uh, that uh, uh, some other aspects that I think we should underline. Uh, the fact that Israel has now relations with a number of Arab countries needs to be seen as opportunity. I know the Palestinians have seen it very negatively, but I prefer to see it as an opportunity, uh, an opportunity that, by the way, has stopped the annexation of the occupied territories. That would be a, a, a very dramatic evolution that probably would undermine the peace process, but uh, also an opportunity to have uh, uh, by these countries a certain pressure on Israel in order to engage in a serious negotiation with the Palestinians, knowing that the normalization of its relations with uh, the countries of the region and specifically the countries of the Gulf has also an enormous importance for the Israeli economy. So I think that uh, there are a number of circumstances that could create a more favorable environment to a positive attitude of the different actors um, uh, to make things move forward. That's a significant uh, possibility if, if you think within weeks uh, we could actually have, have a movement back toward uh, negotiations under the sponsorship of the, of the quartet. Your comment, no, I meant Mr. Meeting, Secretary General. I, I, if, I may, if I may, I meant I met a meeting of the quartet uh, to, uh -huh. have, uh, to have negotiations, uh, serious negotiations. I think it will take some more time. And eventually the... Uh, 
the result of the elections in both Israel and Palestine will be very important to create conditions for the, I would say, uh, the effectiveness of those peace talks. Everything will tend to be rather precarious before those elections, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't start, and I think we should start as quickly as possible, especially in creating the international environment with the quartet members and the other members of the region, the international environment that is favorable to a Palestinian-Israeli uh, um, uh, rapprochement. Your, your comment uh, a few uh, moments ago about uh, the obstacles to uh, negotiations uh, over the past four years because of the Trump administration's view of, of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issues made me wonder what it's been like to be UN Secretary General in this period when the United States was absent from so many things. How did you... How did you try to keep the UN going in a period where its its key uh, member and 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 supporter was was absent? Well, first of all, I think it should be unfair to only blame the United States for the difficulties of uh, an agreement uh, and the peace process in the uh, Middle East. We have seen that we have been. Uh, a long way, a long way for many decades with difficulties. So let's uh, let's see things in perspective. But uh, I, I have to say that uh, I believe that uh, uh, I can be proud of the fact that with all the difficulties and problems that were known, it was possible to maintain a functional relationship with the United States in relation to the core of the UN activities. That were areas that we know the United States have left from climate change to uh, WHO, uh, but uh, uh, in the core of the activities of the UN and uh, uh, the United States remained present and we established all forms of cooperation that were possible in many areas of the world. Uh, we were in close contact and we were trying to work together to make things happen positively, be it in uh, uh, Yemen or Libya, as I mentioned, uh, uh, even in the Middle East, we maintained uh, an active dialogue. And uh, in all other areas, uh, it was possible to maintain a functional relationship. And I also want to pay tribute to the work that the uh, US permanent representatives uh, in uh, the uh, UN uh, have, have given to that. Both Nikki Haley and Kelly Kraft have been extremely, extremely positive in uh, preserving and maintaining one relationship, even in when we had areas where obviously there was not uh, an easy agreement on a number of uh, uh, very complex issues, as you know. I want to ask you, Mr. Secretary General, about Yemen, which you've mentioned several times. The UN has has a very active mediator in in Martin Griffiths, who's who's been seeking negotiations tirelessly for many many months, and we hear reports that it it may be possible to have another exchange of prisoners uh, through Jordan, thanks to the efforts of Martin Griffiths and others. Uh, tell us what you can about that. Do you think another prisoner release? Uh, is is possible? How soon might that happen? Oh, things are moving, and I think they're moving forward positively. We work very closely with the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, that plays also a very important role in this exchange of prisoners uh, question. And I'm quite hopeful that uh, the next exchange will take place uh, uh, soon. But of course, this is just one aspect. The central aspect is um, to um, succeed in what we were trying to do, which is to, to come to an agreement between the parties 
for a joint uh, declaration, that was the name given to it, joint declaration, establishing a permanent ceasefire, a number of confidence-building measures, namely in relation to the management of the harbours and the airports, um, to facilitate uh, with certain guarantees of security transit, and uh, the uh, beginning again of uh, serious uh, peace uh, talks. Um, uh, unfortunately, in the end of last year, things got uh, uh, complicated. Beginning of this year, things got complicated. We had uh, Saudi Arabia on board. We had a positive attitude from Oman, from um, Iran. Even the Houthis became on board. Some difficulties with the Hadi government. But then, uh, when we were expecting to move forward, we had this uh, bombardment, uh, as you remember, of the uh, Aden airport where the Hadi government was arriving. That has created, of course, a very, very difficult uh, situation and made the, the government reluctant to engage into uh, serious talks. We had also from the Houthis a number of um, recriminations in relation to the UN uh, that uh, also undermined the possibility to move forward. And uh, uh, we are now working hard. Uh, uh, Martin Griffith was in Riyadh, is moving to Tehran. We are working hard to create the conditions to bring again back the parties to come to an agreement on a ceasefire, on a number of confidence-building measures and on the resumption of peace talks, as I mentioned. And I hope that this will be possible. It's not easy. And again, uh, we very much count on uh, the US uh, active engagement uh, uh, to um, facilitate uh, this kind of uh, rapprochement between parties that have been at odds with each other for a long time and with levels of mistrust that are indeed very high. One uh, factor uh, at the end of the, the Trump administration that uh, complicated the Yemen situation was the decision to designate the Houthis as a terrorist uh, group uh, announced by uh, former Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo. Have, have you talked with his successor, Anthony Blinken, or with others in the administration about removing that designation as part of your effort to encourage uh, some well, we did peace all, negotiations? We did Yemen. our best. We did our best, first of all, to avoid that decision to be taken, and uh, we are now actively engaged to see if uh, that can be removed. There is uh, sometimes there is lack of sensibility to uh, one problem, and the problem is the following: um, even if we make exemptions uh, uh, in these sanctions in relation to humanitarian aid, for instance, uh, these sanctions um, are created, and uh, it's U.S. law that applies to them. So if a company can be accused of directly or indirectly cooperating with a terrorist organization, that company will have sanctions uh, in relation to uh, that uh, based on US law. And so uh, independently of exemptions that are given, uh, the truth is that we see in financial institutions, in operators, uh, contractors of different kinds, a reluctance, we just felt it now again in relation to the uh, repairs of the safer tanker, a reluctance to get engaged because they are afraid of what might happen to them um, that might be condemned by uh, an American court or whatever. And so um, the humanitarian support to Yemen can be dramatically undermined by this fact. And that is the reason why we strongly advocate for the um, uh, removal of this designation. We are not here in a campaign of beatification of the Uti movement, far from that. We have had an experience of a uh, um, uh, number of uh, uh, very negative uh, actions uh, from uh, their side, not only their side, but, but also from their side. Uh, that is not the question. The question is, Humanitarian aid to a country that is uh, uh, 
at the edge of starvation. I mean, it's a very dramatic situation and in which uh, we have a combination of all possible facts, COVID, uh, uh, locusts, um, uh, drought, uh, and the climate change impacts, uh, um, and the COVID, all these makes the situation of uh, the Yemeni people extremely vulnerable. People are suffering enormously. And um, I think it's important not to put any, obs or, or any obstacles to an already very difficult humanitarian action. So, uh, Mr. Secretary-General, I want to ask you in the remaining several minutes we have about efforts by Russia to work through the UN, through the General Assembly, uh, through UN agencies like the uh, International Telecommunications Union, to try to develop a new treaty or rules of the road for cyberspace. Uh, as you know, uh, last year the Russians got uh, Security Council, or, or excuse me, General Assembly backing for beginning that uh, process. Uh, many American uh, companies in the technology space, and I think this is, applies to European companies and, and governments as well, are concerned that this is not the way to go about setting new rules of the road for for, for cyberspace. The Russian effort, in their view, is 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 not uh, the, the the best channel. What's your view about whether the UN should be the the, the forum for setting new rules for cyberspace? Well, as a matter of fact, there are two initiatives, one that was sponsored by Russia, the other that was sponsored by the United States. They were in parallel uh, moving and, of course, uh, with different perspectives, but they are both uh, in the context of the um, uh, of the committee of the of uh, the United Nations. What I've been saying about these issues and I've been advocating in the context of the roadmap that we have presented and in the context of a high level panel that I've created and produced its conclusions is that more and more we need a multi-stakeholder approach to find uh, a common ground in areas uh, like these. We need to have states, we need to have companies, we need to have researchers, we need to have the civil society together involved. It's probably difficult today to approve international conventions with the old style for these new technologies that move so quickly. So we need mechanisms that are more flexible, mechanisms that are more adjustable, based on um, uh, a, a serious dialogue among the key stakeholders, establishing a number of red lines, establishing a number of uh, best practices, uh, establishing uh, eventually a certain number of protocols, but with the capacity to adapt them uh, as time goes by. And what I see the UN is essentially to be a platform where people can come together less as an entity to establish uh, uh, rigid rules for which we have little capacity and more as a platform where the different actors can come together and try to find ways and means to solve a problem that in my opinion is a rapidly evolving problem and needs a completely different approach from the classic traditional approaches in which we would uh, gather all countries of the world, approve a convention that would take five or six years to approve and then two years to ratify. And of course, the reality in the cyberspace will be completely different when finally that uh, exercise is ended. Mr. Secretary General, I want to thank you on behalf of our viewers for spending this time with us and being so specific about your agenda. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.